If you have your Bibles, please open to Psalm 62. I would like to say before I start, I am really grateful that more of you are coming out on Friday nights. I know that just means that there's, um, you know, things are, are, this whole COVID situation is kind of winding down to a certain extent, or there's a little bit more comfort in that way. But I hope that ultimately you find your security and your trust in the Lord and not necessarily on, you know, things external. Again, I'm not dismissing those things. I'm just glad to see all of you here. Uh, and I trust that over time I'll see more of you, some of you online. Uh, and I, I know that the Lord will bring us back together soon. Psalm 62 is going to, going to be our text this evening. And it reads, For the choir director, according to Jeduthium, a psalm of David, my soul waits in silence for God alone. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? Like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. My soul waits in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. O oh God, my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in him. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. The balance, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. Do not boast in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery and riches. If, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord. For you recompense a man according to his work. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that as we look at this passage, this psalm, where we're instructed to trust you and to wait in silence, no matter how great the calamity, the conflicts, uh, or just the circumstance, the hard and difficult circumstance may be, may we always find our peace in you and silently wait on your timing, Lord. Thank you for your word. Be with us this evening. May we receive your word and may we be equipped to live a life full of trust in you. In your son's precious name, amen. There's a phrase that is actually quite common in some of the possessions that we own. It's a phrase that's familiar and is you know, printed in a lot of things that we have. And this phrase is uh, this, this printed phrase are on a lot of objects, and some of these objects are actually in our cars right now. Some of you have it in your pockets. Others of you give it to one another as gifts, and 
This phrase is printed on most of our American currency, and you're familiar with it. It is a phrase that says, that reads, in God we trust. Granted, the original founding fathers were not necessarily speaking of the God of the Bible, but as Christians that worship the one and only true God, this phrase should be something that we cherish, not because it's on our currency, but because the Bible tells us that it's in God that we trust. And although this phrase is printed on, on, on our bills and, and our coins and everything else, sometimes it's not written in our own hearts. It is a common phrase in our lives, and I find that it's actually rarely applied in our life. It's very, it's very rarely even believed in, a, in, 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 a, in the context of a Christian group. So the question that we need to ask yourself is, do I trust in God? Is God the one that I trust? In whatever circumstances that you're facing or whatever circumstances that you will face, do you find yourself trusting and knowing that in a fallen world, there really is no hope outside of God? That there's nothing of, of worth and nothing of substance and nothing that could really ground you other than Jesus Christ. Many have tried relationships, wealth, status, and even ministry to find security only to realize that those things will not protect you. Some of you trust in yourselves, you, and the evidence of that is of self-reliance often shown in self-pity. You, you think, oh, woe is me, I can never get out of this rut, or you think highly of yourself, too highly of yourself, where you think I can, go, I can overcome this all by myself. You have such a high view of yourself that you, you, that you think that relying on yourself, that you, know, you could do everything on your own, realizing that you actually can't do it. Yet Jesus tells us in the New Testament that he is the vine and we are the branches. And without him, we can do nothing. And do you truly believe that? Is God really the one that you trust? Do you believe that you are and can, and can do nothing without him? And if so, then it is not God that you trust, but it is something else that you believe and something else that you trust. And trust me, if you place your trust in those things, those things will not last. If we, have no con if we, have, if we are to have confidence and life in this fallen world, we must trust in God. As some of you I know are going through a lot, some of you have just gone through a lot of, uh, of difficult times, and some of you are about to go through some very hard times. And no one really knows, except for the Lord, what's in store for you. And if your trust and confidence is in anything else but the God of Scripture, you will not survive and you will not endure. We all need more confidence in Jesus Christ in light of a virus and social unrest and change in our culture and economic down and up and, and rising persecution against Christians or whatever the world brings, a little hard, all the hard circumstances, if we need to realize that we're actually weaker than we would like to admit, that we actually need more of our God. You notice in the beginning of the subscript, it attributes to David David is, is writing this psalm as a confidence in the Lord. He's writing this, this trust in him. Even in life-threatening life circumstances, David calmly and confidently trusts in God. In the darkest and hardest time, there's no 
anxiousness or fear. And David is patiently waiting and wondering how long this trial is going to be before God will take him out of this circumstance. Again, perhaps some of you are in some difficult situation in life. You lost a job, you lost a family member, you might be lonely because of not finding a spouse. It could be just a pandemic. And you want to know how much longer is this going to be. Whatever circumstance you're in, David models and teaches us how we can have confidence in God and God alone. One of the general observations as I read through this text is that David doesn't speak about what the problem is. He doesn't talk much about what the, what the situation, what the hardship is. Rather, he is describing God. He's not talking about the circumstance, but rather describing God in the circumstance. And David is far more interested in describing and thinking about the truth and attributes of God than the actual problem. David is far more interesting in describing Yahweh in the storm as opposed to the storm itself. This is an attitude that we must have as well. We must look to God. David waits silently with confidence in the Lord. His strength, his security shows his complete assurance in God and even warns us about areas in life that we should never place our trust in. If you want to survive in this world, you must first and foremost have a faithful trust in God for strength. Our first point of the evening is this. You need to have a faithful trust in God for strength if you wanted to live and survive in this fallen world. Verse 1, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. David's faith is that of someone that is calm, cool, and collected. He's completely trusting in the Lord. David isn't trusting in his own ability to trust in God, but rather he's looking to the nature of God. Notice he writes, my soul waits, <coughs> excuse me, my soul waits in silence. David's waiting or trusting, entrusting his heart to the Lord, expecting God will one day deliver him. It says here that from him is my salvation. He is convinced that God will deliver him and save him one day. He knows that the only way to escape is from God and from God alone. Verse 2, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. In this verse, he begins to describe different attributes of God. He uses these different metaphors to help, to help us grasp a very abstract concept. We know that God is greater than us, and he needs to find some way to make us think about the Lord. So he describes, him, describes the Lord in these different ways. But notice that he, he uses the word only, or in some translations, he uses the word alone. It shows up multiple times in this chapter, and it's supposed to show that he has this soul dependency and trust in God. God is the only one that can protect him, and he's just silently waiting for him. This is all set up for the three metaphors that he'll use. He used to, he, we, in, we, in our minds, we have to think that we, we have to know God's attribute and commit ourselves to dwelling on these attributes. We have to understand these principles. And have you ever, and this is this exclusive trust in him. I wonder if you ever wonder, if you ever thought about um, trying to stand on one foot. You think you're grounded? I'm like, you're standing on one foot right now. There's only so long before I tip over. Or if you put one foot on solid ground and, you're no, and another foot on something else, like a running current or, or, or sand, you, know, it, you don't really have that much stability. One little tip and you might be knocked over. You have to understand that your devotion and your trust must be in the, lo in the Lord, Lord alone. You must be grounded in who he is. 
knowing that he alone is the only one that can protect you is the only way that you can endure in this life. God is your rock, he is our salvation, and he is our stronghold. And if you put your one foot on these areas and another foot on others in, in something else, then God won't be these things for you. God won't be your rock. God won't be your uh, salvation, and the Lord will not be your stronghold. But if you put both, if you plant both feet in every single one of these attributes, you, and you dwell on these things, that's where you find confidence during during very difficult times. You know, the first metaphor is He only is my rock. This is signifying that the, that God is the only one that provides strength and certainty in his faith. And this is a phrase and word that's used in describing the Lord throughout the Psalms. Psalm 18, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, in salvation my stronghold. <laughs> Chapter 18, verse 31, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Psalm 18, verse 46, the, the Lord lives and blessed, blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. Psalm 19, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is a metaphor to describe a place of protection. When you think of the word rock, oftentimes we think of little pebbles, and that's not the case. But even then, even then, if you ever pick a rock, you understand these things are very hard, right? Like, I, I trust if you chuck a, a rock at a, any glass, the glass will break. If you take a glass and you decide to chuck it at the rock, the glass will also break. The rock wins all the time when it goes against glass. And this is a trust that they understood. They understood that the, the rock of a salvation meaning that we trust in him, that God is this is this is this st the stable, stabling factor in their life. In that time, it was a picture of this huge rock that oftentimes creatures even hide under. Proverbs 30 speaks of these little badger-like creatures that hides under the rock. And animals obviously would go under rocks because they're afraid of these predators from, the, from above that would swoop down and eat them. I think a few weeks ago, there was like this little gopher that was running around the outdoor servers, and then one of those birds just flew by and ate it. You know, he didn't find that rock in time. He was hiding under cars for a little bit, but eventually, he didn't get to the rock in time. In the New Testament, uh, we understand also that this metaphor of a rock that's also used when Jesus said that we need to build our foundation on this rock, that if we build it on sinking sand, the storms come, we'll be knocked over. And there's also a sense in which the rock itself provides shelter from the storms as well. God encompasses all of these things. God protects us from the things above, the storms in life, and the ground, and even grounds you. God is all three for us. He keeps us from the predator. He keeps us from calamity, and he keeps us stable. The second metaphor that uses my salvation, this is the second time he uses it. First, in verse one, from him is my salvation, and second one, he is my rock, my salvation. And this is deliverance. This idea of salvation has two meanings in the Bible. There's a temporal sense in this life, the salvation that comes from this world, like physical deliverance. And that there's also the eternal one. And I think in this context, David is speaking of both in terms of temporal and eternal. That if he loses this life, then he gets to be with the Lord. But if, he, but if he's in this life, he knows that God is going to deliver him in this life. God is the only one that can stop the current situation that David is in, and he knows that. He understands that. There's this trust in the sovereign hand of God. This last description here is a stronghold, or 
some people use the word fortress or high tower, this idea of, of someone watching over you. It's used to describe border walls and there's like a watchtower, a guard tower from the top, making sure <coughs> that the enemy, if they are to come, that there will be, there will be, you'll be defended against them. That you don't need to worry. There is no safer place for the people back then than to be inside of a fortress or stronghold. Again, this is a common metaphor to describe the Lord. Psalm 144, verse 2. My loving kindness and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he is whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. It's also used even in the negative sense. And Jeremiah is described like how the enemies have these fortresses that are really high. And Jeremiah 48 describes how God will just destroy those things. So we have a fortress that protects us, and we have a God that could also destroy other fortresses. This is why I think Luther used this particular metaphor in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress. It begins by saying, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Again, Martin Luther wrote this understanding that, okay, the Roman Catholics are trying to kill him, but no matter how scary things are, he trusts in the Lord. He, know that, he knows that God is his fortress. Whether it be darkness, dangers, even death, nothing is going to cause him fear because God is his fortress. This is how Martin Luther thought about the Lord. This is how David thought about the Lord. And I wonder if this is how you think about the Lord. Do you think that the Lord is your fortress and protection from the things that are evil in this world? Whether you get delivered in this life, it's uncertain, but for sure you'll be delivered for eternity. If our trust is in the Lord, that must mean that the things that we don't need to worry about our life as much as we should. We need to be faithfully trusting the Lord and go about doing the work of the ministry, telling people about Jesus, calling people to repentance, doing good works for people. But if our assurance is in, in the things of the world, so when the world shakes, when the, the fortresses of the world shake, then we will be lost. Notice that David says that since God has all of these things, rock, salvation, and fortress, that he himself will never be shaken. It says here that he will never be greatly shaken. Looks. He looks at God and who he is, he knows that God will keep him. In the English translation, the Nazbi here used the phrase greatly shaken and implying here that there's somehow some wiggle room. But the original is actually stronger than that. It means to not be moved at all. It's like just completely still. It means to never be um, shifted in any way. He's grounded, he's secure. Nothing can move you if God is your rock, salvation, and fortress. Stability is an attribute of who God is. He is an eternal God. He's, he has power over all things. That means we can trust him. He's a God that is stable. We can place our trust in him. Now, do you view your work as your rock? Or perhaps for some of you, you view your relationships as your salvation. And maybe some of you even hold and think that money is your stronghold. Where do you find your confidence? Where do you find your trust? Do you realize that as you try to trust in yourself or other things, that eventually those things, although seemingly firm for just a little bit, will not keep you steady? 
The things of this world are not stable, and nothing that you can do on your own strength can do the same. God is the only one that doesn't change, which is why we must have this total reliance and dependency on him. Verse 3, how long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? This verse begins introducing the crisis, a little bit of a crisis of what he's facing. Again, he doesn't explicitly say why they're doing these things, but just that there are people that want to kill him. This word assail just means an onslaught, this continual attack. David is surprised that his enemy are continually doing, they're trying to do this to him. Remember, he was a king at one point. And yet, even as a king, if you read through first and second, or particular second Samuel, you see that David spent a lot of his time running from those that hate him. They like saw the king before him, tried to kill him as you know, David was a musician playing his harp. And all of a sudden, David, uh, Saul chucks a spear at him. He's like, okay, I'm out of here. David was hunted all his life. He understands what it's like to be targeted, to be discriminated against. But yet, no matter how bad things are, he's confident in the Lord. The question is addressed to the enemies and refers to David as a man who's the object of their attack. The language becomes specific in the second half. It says that like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. Now, people debated on what this view is. that the enemies are, t are t you know, about to tip over, or is it David? I hold to view that that is David here. This is an image of a fence that's just so damaged, so burnt out, that it doesn't take much longer for him to be knocked over. He's bombarded by their attacks, and the, he's only a breath away from collapsing completely. They want to kill him, they almost succeed. But yet David is not worried. Verse 4, they have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in, false, <coughs> in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. David no longer speaks to the enemy, but about them and about himself. These enemies want to dethrone David. They delight in falsehood. These enemies here, they hate David so much, they're willing to create a lie so they could take him down. They will do whatever it takes as long as David is off the throne. They do not mind coming up with stories. With, with, they don't mind slandering him. They don't mind gossiping about him. They don't mind defaming his character. They will do whatever it takes as long as David is brought low. It says here that they bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. These people are deceptive. They're traitors. They're backstabbers. This means that those that are doing this to David are, are people that David knows. You know, these are like close confidants at one point. And he sees right through. He knows that, okay, the way that you're treating me now means that all the things you've said before was a lie. They may think that what they're doing is good, but, they, but David sees through it. David sees that their praise and their flattery and are just all untrue. These are just phony people in his life. They pretend to honor him, uh, essentially just to butter him up so that they can bring him down. In the public sphere, they shower David with praise, but in private, there's a storm already brewing in their own hearts. It is possible that they are part of his inner circle, and with their mouth, they say things that are pleasing before him, but in their hearts, they're trying to plot against him. And perhaps it's how you're feeling. You're feeling that everyone around you is against you. 
And maybe that is to a certain extent. Maybe you're in a work environment where you are the only Christian and people before you are saying so many pleasant things. But the moment they find out you're a Christian, they may still say those pleasant things. But in their hearts, they, they're thinking, oh, this guy is a bigot or, or she's this uh, she's this person, she's alt-right alt or whatever. She holds to these views that are contrary and backwards. But in your presence, they might say nice things. But when the time comes, they will turn on you. The greatest pains are always from those that are closest to you. This happened to David, it always happened to our Savior, and one day it will happen to you as well. Yet in light of those close relationships that turn against David, who does David turn to? He doesn't go back and try to reconcile and try to figure things out. No, he goes to the Lord. Jesus said one day there will be families that will turn against one another because of their devotion to Jesus Christ. It is in those moments you need to know not only that Jesus' word came true in their persecution, but God's word is also true in protecting you through the persecution. Lean into the Lord. Lean into the character and attributes of God. Hope in him alone when life is not easy. Where do you derive your strength from? Is it exclusive devotion to the Lord or is it mixed of the Lord and something else? Is it Lord in relationships? Is it Lord even in the good things like the church? Do you find yourself only leaning, uh, going into ministry or even going to church thinking that I'll find my protection there? Because even Jesus, in his inner circle of people, one of them turned against him. And if it can happen to Jesus, it can happen to us as well. So that's why our devotion and our trust must be in the Lord. It is normal in our sinful flesh to depend on something else. It's very easy for us to find our strength in other things, but you have to understand that those things will fail you. The only place that any of us can find true strength is in the Lord. Our heart must only be in the Lord. In those moments where your family and friends turn on you, when your coworker leaves you, when all of these people abandon you, who would say, we'll ride with you till we die, and then all of a sudden you realize that they're, uh, they're the reason why you might die as well. But when those seem to matter at one point leave you and you feel alone and completely drained, you must remember that your strength is always in Jesus. That because Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, our strength will never be drained because our life is tethered to him and no one else. It is only in him and in him alone that we can survive in this world. Not only can you survive by faithfully trusting in God, but in order to survive in this life, you must also faithfully depend on God for salvation. So our second point, faithful dependence on God for salvation. Verse 5. My soul wait in silence for God alone, or God only, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. Now, in case you were napping earlier, this is actually later on in the verse. Like, hey, didn't you just go over this? And you like, wake up, like, hey, why are we still in the same verse? It sounds familiar, but it's not the same. There's a, there's a, it's a parallel, um, and there are some things that are different here. And verse 5 is similar to verse 1. Verse 6 is similar to verse 2. And why is it like that? Well, we understand even in pop songs that there are choruses, right? Sometimes the most catchy part of the song is the chorus, and you remember the, those parts. And that's the same kind of idea that David is doing here. He's saying something very similar in certain even similar cadence so that you can know that God is our rock, our, our salvation, and our fortress. 
It's supposed to be memorable. It's repeated for emphasis. It is close, but not completely identical. Again, it's used for us to remind ourselves of the truth. But there is one major difference here. And that is found in verse 5 where it says, For my hope is from him. Why the subtle change? He hopes in the future uh, of he hopes in the future that God will save him. His dependency is on, the, is on God for the future. He again is sure that he will not be moved in his faith because he knows where the Lord is taking him. He might have moments where he might be impatient or in tremendous pain. He might be agitated and aggravated. But in those short moments, he calms himself down and contemplates the same things that he knows about the Lord. He contemplates the nature of God. He hopes in God those short moments of struggle are only remedied in his dependence on God for salvation. It is very crucial in your life that you, need to, that you need to look at the nature of our God. How great or how little your faith will be is depending on how much you know of him. How great or how little you think of God will impact the way that you live your daily life. You must understand you must be marked as a person that looks to God. You must look past your situation and your circumstance. You must look beyond the pain and misery. You need to bypass your immediate turmoil and tribulation and see God. We aren't people that are without hope. Proverbs 11 Verse 7, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of a strong man, of strong men, perishes. There is a reality that in a fallen world, you can't trust in anything else. You can't depend on anything else but the Lord. We must depend on the Lord at all times. And when he talks about this, how the Lord is, is, is hope. I wonder if that's what you think about. Is your hope in the Lord? How much you know of him will dictate how you respond. You understand that, right? You understand that like, how, how much you know about the Lord is going to shape the way that you live. If, for example, if you were to think your faith as a well and the knowledge of God it will sustain you as water. The more you know of the Lord, the deeper that well is, so that when the difficult times come, there will be much to draw from. But at the same time, if you know little of God, then your well isn't that deep, so that when those trials come, you can draw just a little bit, maybe splashes of water, but instead you, you could have had a deeper well. But your knowledge of him is so little that you can't draw from those things of God. Or if you use the illustration of money, if faith is like a bank and knowledge of God is money and trials are those things that withdraw cash from your account, then if those trials come, then it's, easily for, it's easy for you to, be, to go bankrupt. For others, the more you know of God, the more that you can endure through those hard times. Or you think faith as a, as a pantry and food is, is, is the knowledge of God, 
Then when difficult times come, you can't, you know, when you can't buy food, you know, and we understand this because COVID-19, we can't go out and buy food for a while, that where you draw from are from your storage. Do you understand this picture of how the more we know about God, the more we can be sustained during those hard times? Which means the only solution for us to have a cure of a lack of faith is to nurture that faith by knowing God more. David understands this. He feeds his soul with the attributes of God. This is why it's important for you to learn more about God in any context that you're in, whether it's personal Bible reading, whether it's your own Bible study you're part, whether you're in this fellowship group or Sunday worship or Sunday school, whatever it may be, you need to be a part of those things so that you can fill your minds with truth about God so that while you're, and as you're doing so, you're really digging your well deeper to know God more. In those instances, you're adding funds to your faith. And in those circumstances, in those situations where you get to learn, you're stocking up on spiritual food. So lack of desire to be part of these you know, moments where we learn more about God is completely unwise for your soul because you're not preparing yourself for what is about to come in your life. David, verse 7, says, Oh God, my salvation, my glory rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in him. David declares his faith. He affirms his confidence in the Lord that God is his only refuge. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. David gives instruction to the readers here. He speaks first of personal experience. Now, he's te- now this is like a teaching moment. He tells us to trust in God at all times. In the Hebrew, all time just means all times. It's all the time. We need to trust in him in all times. We need to trust in this eternal God eternally. Do not waver in your faith even for a moment. David then says that we can pour out our hearts before God. This word pour is this idea of letting God know your pain. Several weeks ago, when we were going through the Psalms, we talked about how you know, the, the, uh, the Lord knows and keeps our tears in a bottle. It's this idea that he knows our pain. Pour out a heart before him. Tell God of your troubles through prayer. I've once said, I've used this even the saying before, that what you run to reveals where you, what you depend on. What you run to first during, your, during trials reveals what you depend on the most. As a parent, uh, I, I somewhat get a little jealous when my kids run to my wife. When something happens and the kids go to my wife, like, I'm right here, I'm standing right in front of you as you did this horrible thing to one another, or you break that toy, like, oh, I'm right here, I can help you, but instead they run to their, to their mother. And that's why, it's like, I think that's why it's for little ones to go to my wife. Why? Because mommy knows best, daddy knows second best. <laughs> and yes, it reveals their heart, they depend on their parents, their, their mom primarily, and that's good. They, they spend a lot of time, they know their mom, they trust him, therefore they go to him first. I'm sure there are those of us that we run to when things don't work out or something is broken in life, and there's a natural dependency on things like that. However, there are going to be problems that are so great that no human can offer any lasting comfort. You recall in Job, when, when he was meeting all his friends, the best thing that his friends did was just to show up. They couldn't offer anything because the, the, the problem and stuff was beyond comprehension for him and the friends. They knew that they can't, you know, they can't offer much relief. There are going to be struggles in your life that no human can give 
comfort, at least not lasting comfort. It may give you little relief, but it's never enough. And David here is teaching us to go and pour out our hearts to God, to make your needs be made known to him, to go and to run to him. He is the only one that you and I can depend on. And those great moments of tremendous pain, pour out your heart to the Lord. When you struggle with singleness, when that struggle is just so great, and you, you pour out to the Lord, Lord, I am struggling in this area. When the pressure from family to deny the faith, go to the Lord, ask the Lord to sustain you. When money is tight and you're wondering when the next Biden bucks come in, depend on the Lord, cry out to him. Whatever situation that you may be, whatever causes you tears and pain, whatever darkness you're going through, if you want to survive, you need to pour out your heart to God. And the knowledge of God, what you know of him is going to sustain you. And what you know of him will cause you to go to him because you know his attributes. You know that he's a good God. You know that he's a great provider. You know that he will never leave you. Pour out your heart to the Lord. Now, David here shifts from two positives, positive in terms of things that you need to do. Now he focuses on the negative. He goes backwards here a little bit. David shifts from two positive things of what we must do. Now he goes to saying things that we must not do in order to survive. He's spoken positively, depend on the Lord and trust in the Lord, or trust in the Lord and depend on the Lord. And now negatively, he tells you to flee from the reliance of worldly solutions. He's telling this is what you should not do. If you want to survive in the world, do not do this. Do not rely on the worldly solution, which is our last point. Flee reliance on worldly solutions. Verse 9, men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. Now, this phrase here, men of low degree, it's not saying like, oh, he only got a high school degree. Don't trust people. Don't trust high schoolers. I think that's true, but that's not what it's saying here. When it talks about degrees here, it's just speaking of, of status, of where they're at. Status symbol does not protect you, no matter where, how high or how low you are, it doesn't matter. Because later on, he says, right in the middle of this verse, in verse 9, in the balance, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. I think you understand what balance and scales are. Right? You try to check your weight, you have to stand on it, and, and then usually tell you, okay, you weigh this much. But if you were to gather every single person in your life, if you were to gather all your friends, all your family, believers and non-believers, and you put it on a scale, and that's your circle of, of protection and your support group, there will come a time where that scale is just going to be tipped, and they're all just float away like a little vapor. That's what it's saying here, that they are lighter than breath. This word breath is the word for vanity, the same word that's used in Ecclesiastes. They mean nothing. No matter where they are, how powerful they are, how low they are in society, the moment that they, uh, the moment the trial comes, they just gone. It's not to diminish these individuals; just saying that it, sometimes trials are just so great that you can't depend on them, that they can't offer any solution. You trust in a person or group of people other than Jesus; those things will fade. The moment that that, that trial lands on that scale, it's over. Some of you and your conscience create a circle of companions for your Christianity as opposed to Christianity being centered around Christ. 
some of you, in your conscience, create a circle of companions for Christianity as opposed to your Christianity being centered around Christ. David's not saying that you can't have fellowship with other believers. But he's saying that trusting in people, even those that are believers, if, there's, if it's not Jesus, is useless. David had good friends, faithful friends, prophets, but they were like a feather during hard times. They can be blown away. And David is showing you the vanity of man so that you don't trust in man. You know, one of the things that we've noticed as a pastoral and elder, and elder group, um, we noticed that sometimes people did tie their faith to people and not the Lord. Some of, uh, some of the people that we've had, not just in our church, but just in churches in, in America and the world, they just, they just disappeared the moment that they couldn't go back to church. It's like their church or their faith was grounded in the physical building of the, of, of the, 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 in the physical building. Or some people say, oh, I can't, I don't have fellowship anymore, therefore my faith is gone. No, you have to understand all of these things are good. They're a means of grace, but they are, that they're just that. They're just a means of grace. They're not grace itself. God is where we need to tie our faith to. He's the only one that tethers us. All of the other blessings that God gives us, these are all blessings and they can help us, but they are not the source of our faith. And if you are trusting in those things instead of the Lord, they will be blown away. And we need to trust and rely on him and him alone. Even on the good things, I'm not saying these things are bad. I'm not saying fellowship and family and church are bad. I'm just saying that you need to fix your hope and your identity in Christ in Christ, and not in anything else. Look at verse 10. Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. <clears throat> David here tells people to not place your faith in your power or people or hope in wealth that you obtain from hurting people. David's saying that there are people due to their own self-deception and self-dependency will attempt to rob others to make themselves feel secure. <clears throat> to set your heart on wealth means that wealth is the object of your security. Wealth, just like friendships that you have in this life, are only short-lived security that can disappear in a moment which means there is no way that you can trust in wealth and status or the people for your salvation. All that this world has to offer is transitory. And to esteem them with, and they, these things must be esteemed with very little value. But that which is eternal is everything. If you have confidence in God and can continual dependency on God, you must never rely on worldly solution because all of these things are solutions from the world. Right? Money, status, people. You need all of these things in order to live. But these things are all going to fade. The only thing that's going to last is our God. The Hebrews tells that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you want to have confidence in life, in, in, if, you have con if, you, if you want to have hope in this life, you must not seek the things of this world. Now, is that you? Do you find your self-dependent on people in order to find stability? Do you find yourself working hard at your jobs? So you can make a whole bunch of money, or even for some, you might be stealing, hopefully not. Do you think that that bag of money is going to give you some sort of stability during hard times? <clears throat> Maybe for some of you, you think that if I have a, a high standing in society and the status that I've acquired in my work, that I'm immune from persecution. 
but you have to realize that those things will not keep you afloat in the storm. David said, all these things are foolish and vain. Trust God. Verse 11. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. Now, this sounds kind of weird. Like, what does this mean? Uh, commentary dif- different on what the interpretation means. Almost like a little, I don't know, like riddle at times. But I, I, I think what he means is this. At one point in his life, he heard something from the Lord. And twice he heard this. Maybe at some point, a prophet, maybe Nathan or, or someone that just told him about this. But whatever it is, he's heard this multiple times. And that is this, that power belongs to God. Power belongs to God. God is strong. God is sovereign. God is powerful enough to deliver you because of this faithful covenant to you and for you. Look at verse 12. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. God is loving. He's you have to see the, the two truth working hand in hand, that God and his loving kindness and his covenant love for you is going to keep you. And at the same time, he's powerful enough. He's, he, he knows he's in control of all things. That's why you and I don't need to worry, because we know that our, our Lord loves us, and he's powerful enough to sustain us. God is loving. Nothing can be more comforting to know than that the, the sovereign hand of God is also the hand that is filled with love. Our God is for us, and he is not against us, and we need to trust in him in order to survive in this world. Don't trust in the worldly things. Don't trust in what the world has to offer. Don't trust in the riches of the world. Trust in the Lord. During World War II, France was, France, the French would lose a lot of wars, but in particular World War II, France was occupied by Nazi Germany and for what felt like to them probably an eternity, and they were unsure how long it will be before the tyranny of Nazi Germans will go away. They have heard rumors. There was a group called the French Revolution. They were almost like a secret group that was in France that was working with the Allied forces. And there was a rumor from these forces that said that, hey, the Allied people are coming. There's going to be a day that they're coming. They're planning something. Be prepared. Rescue is on its way. And we know it in history what that is. It's June 6, 1944, D-Day. And when D-Day arrived in Normandy, the French realized that salvation is here. They heard all the bombings at night. They looked out. They saw all the flashes. And they just needed to hold on a little longer because they knew eventually that they will be free. It took them a while, but eventually that's what people and historians have said that was the beginning of the end of the Second World War. We have to understand that what we have is so much greater than a worldly army because we have God himself coming. We don't need people whispering into our ears that oh, God is coming, God is coming, because we know God is coming. We have the scriptures. We find our comfort in him. And unlike a physical, a real war that takes time for people to, to actually occupy and then take the land back, when Christ returns, our salvation will be immediate. We hope and depend on him, knowing that he watches over us because he loves us. Now I ask, I end by asking that same question. Do you trust God? Because if you do, you will be waiting silently on the Lord because of who he, who he is, how he revealed himself in, in Scripture? Or do you anxiously wait for salvation that's only in this world? How you answer that question 
will determine whether or not you will survive in this broken and fallen world. Let us pray. Father God, you are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our stronghold. Lord, we may be tempted to trust in other things. There may be things in the world that worry us. We may even offer worldly solutions, but we know those things are vain. Lord, we confess to you in those moments where we do plant our foot, one foot on you and one foot in the world, or one foot in your word and another foot in the words of man. Lord, we confess to you those sins. You are our good God. You are a gracious God. You are a powerful God. And we are overwhelmed by your love for us. We know that you'll keep us even though there are moments where we don't believe or we struggle with doubts. Lord, help us in those moments. Help us dive deeper into your word so we can dig a deeper well to draw from when those times come. Lord, thank you for the time that we have to to study your word and may we be strengthened not just this weekend or this coming week but until we see you Lord give us strength in these trying times in your precious name Amen some quick announcements I want to make before we go um, I've announced, I mentioned this during our church family meeting about how we're going to do a summer outreach event for the little ones in our church and maybe for the little friends that they want to invite the info meeting is tomorrow from 9 a.m. to 10. I think you might have gotten that email this week. If not, let me know. I could send you the link. It's going to be a Google Meet. I know some of you guys are probably going into the um, uh, here in person for the recording, but um, if you're not and you're going to go on Sunday, you know, feel free to uh, hop on to that. It's just it's a short meeting just so that I can kind of cast a vision of what I want to do and accomplish with this and even ask people volunteers. If you're unable to me uh, make it, that's okay. If you still want to be part of it, just let me know. And uh, we'll have more meetings as we moving as we're moving, you know, forward. I'll give you a Cliff Notes version too as we, you know, after the meeting. So that's tomorrow. Uh, this Sunday as well, we have it's Communion Sunday, so just prepare your hearts for it. Uh, it's always a joy to be able to be with the body and, and and consume the elements as we remember our Savior. And also May 16th is something you can put on your calendar. We're gonna have a joint heirs picnic. It's gonna be right after our our uh, you know worship service outdoors. Um, yeah, just let us, we're going to just look out for that email. Food is going to be provided. And I bring some things to do if you like. Like we're, I think John Lou is going to bring a volleyball net. If you guys want to bring other things, that's, going to, that's fun. We're just going to hang out in the idea so that we can have more fellowship you know, as we transition back and in person. There's, I'm sure some of you um, online have not seen some people in person in a while. And this is just kind of like a, a way that we could slowly transition in. Again, we wait on the Lord. We trust in his timing and all things. But until then, we can just do, make the best of the circumstance. And this is a way to, to, to just cultivate fellowship and, and time to get to know one another, another some more. I know some of you guys are doing that, but this is just for our entire fellowship to be able to, to hang out and just live life together. So just mark that on your calendar, May 16th. I think, I think there's just a sign up just so we, there's going to be sent out soon, just so we know how many food to get. Um, and is that it? Is there anything else? I think May, the... This is May 6th and May 15th is a women's event. I think some of you are involved in that. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's it.